Oh, Lord, pray that's right. <laughs> and now as he taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we have come to the end of the Apostles' Creed. Um, the last thing that we're affirming that we believe in is the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So today what we're going to do is talk, I'm just going to briefly introduce the doctrine, um, the, the resurrection of the body and everlasting life. And we have a, a treat of hearing again from Jan Hughes, who's going to share her creative writing with us, a couple of brief essays that she's written that I think really nicely reflect um, the kind of theological value of embodiment from these different angles. Uh, but to set this up a bit so we can, what we can be thinking about as we listen to her, and then Matt's going to treat us with some literary acumen. <coughs> gonna that'll, give us that'll his, make him happy. Yeah, yeah. He's going to give us his comment. So you get to hear from the, the literary scholar as well. But what Christians have always believed about the body and its participation in redemption and in the future uh, that we share with God as eternal, um, from the earliest phase of our faith, we have affirmed that our resurrection uh, is bodily, that it's not just about our soul going to be with God in some abstract sense, that we're just floating off into the ether to join God up in the clouds. Um, Christians have always affirmed that it's this renewal of the body in the form of resurrection. Now, that form gets mysterious, and there are a lot of questions around what that's going to mean. So, for example, you have um, a lot of Christians still are really uncomfortable with the idea of cremation because they think, I need to be buried whole so that my body will be raised whole. That's a real concern that a lot of people still have. Even when you think, well, you've been, if you're dead long enough, you become dust. But that's still a concern, you know, and that's still something people really wrestle with. So we see how there, there are questions around all of that. What does it mean then for God to knit you back together if you've become ash or dust? Uh, but regardless, you know, what we are saying is that there's something God is doing there that is about a continuation of who you were, uh, that there will be some sort of recognition of each other in the life that we share beyond death. And that there is something bodily about it, and we know that because we see Christ's resurrection as a type of our own resurrection. So uh, the Apostles' Creed names this as the resurrection of the body. The Nicene Creed names this as the resurrection of the dead. So that language gets used in sort of multiple ways. But the things that I think we need to remember is that this encompasses our soul and body. So I think even we can sometimes tend to spiritualize this too much and not recognize that it's bodily. Uh, we also can forget that this is about the whole world. This is about all of creation being renewed. The image in Scripture is that there will be um, the, the joining of heaven and earth in Revelation, which is this redemption of all of creation, all things made new unto God. So it's not just about us, in other words. It's about... God's love for the whole. 
So what we see in the narrative of Scripture is God's love for creation that does not anticipate its annihilation. It anticipates its redemption, its renewal. So just as humanity, body and soul is redeemed, there's something about the, co- the cosmos itself that is valuable to God that is worth preserving even as it is renewed, even as sin, evil, and death, the pain and suffering that we feel now, the tears that we shed, we're all we're promised those things will be expelled, um, and yet the earth itself will not be thrown away. So the picture we have in Revelation is uh, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven down to the earth. It's this, uh, this beautiful kind of marital image of God coming to dwell with us in intimacy. And everything in this new Jerusalem is holy unto God. Uh, Zechariah says, even the pots and pans have the mark of holiness. So there's something really ordinary and lovely about that that reminds us that even right now, the pots and pans can have the mark of holiness. The rolling pins can have the mark of holiness. So in this first piece that Jan's going to share with us, I think that's your second piece, right? Uh, she's going to, to help us think more about the way that the ordinary itself can reflect or can be a kind of channel for um, the divine, which is also a sacramental concept. And so that's what's always affirmed in Scripture is that materiality is not beneath God. In fact, God loves the material. God uses the material to show us who God is. So that's in the form of um, our human bodies. I mean, Christ himself, God became a human. But also in the form of the sacraments. Uh, Very simple things like bread and wine and water become channels for extraordinary grace. And I would say in just the ordinary embodiedness of being human and the people that we come to love, the kind of everyday things that we come to love about each other, God is there. God is present in that. So we don't have to look for only the extraordinary. Okay, so let's listen to Jan. Well, if you were here a few weeks ago when Richard and I taught together, you think this sounds a little familiar. You remember that there was a piece I did that had a missing page. The most embarrassing experience of my life, I think. But anyway, redemption. (laughs) They asked me to read that one again, so here we go. Wonder and witness in ordinary time. Most of the time when I'm asked to speak at a lectureship or a retreat or a class, I speak about story. Even when I say it's going to be about something else, it ends up being about story. I've written stories of my own. I've told other people's stories. I've found stories in books and in newspapers and in pictures and in letters and in diaries and in hospital rooms and in my own garden. I've dwelled upon the stories found in the book of Acts, and I have delighted. Okay, and I have delighted in. in stating that the end of Acts is not the end of the story. We're not part of the canon, but we are part of the story. And thus it is both our pleasure and our responsibility to tell our stories to each other as we walk along through the kingdom. Immediately after September 11, 2001, I found myself with a gigantic writer's block it spilled over into 2002. 
It wasn't that there was nothing to write about. It was that there was too much to write about. How could I decide which stories should be told? And how could I find the words to frame the stories? How could I honor and not diminish what I had seen? And how could I write about anything else? Wasn't everything else simply too mundane? The images of strangers and heroes, of weeping and courage and pain, bombarded my brain and my heart, but still I could not write. I thumbed through a little stack of stories I had written for other days, for other occasions, and I was struck by the ordinariness of my stories. Yes, I had written about life and death and loss and celebration and community, but I was struck by the very simple, often homely metaphors that I had used to frame these stories. A softball game, an ugly little stucco house, a bottle of mucilage, a bird on a deck. Somehow they seemed unworthy of the year 2001. They seemed so ordinary. I had a similar reaction in the aftermath of the Asian tsunami in 2004, followed by the deadly hurricanes Katrina and Rita in 2005. The cataclysmic forces transformed the familiar into the unfamiliar took the settled and unsettled it, took the deeply rooted and uprooted it. Dry became wet. Seemingly solid structures were shattered. Boats were tossed high into trees, caught in the branches like flimsy kites. Families were scattered by wind and water and general chaos. And though the personal stories poured from our newspapers and television screens, we witnessed only a minuscule fraction of the actual upheaval and misery and loss, as well as the remarkable resilience and hope and faithfulness that also emerged from the rubble. And once again, I was haunted by the ordinariness of my response, the ordinariness and inadequacy of my stories. But the word ordinary has become a touchstone for me because the liturgical calendar is not a part of our heritage within the Churches of Christ, most of us have largely missed out on the real sense of the seasons of our faith story. We know Christmas, but ignore Advent, the weeks that tell the stories moving us toward Christmas. We know Easter, but we ignore the Lenten period of preparation for Easter, the telling and even reenactment of the stories of Jesus' last weeks on earth. We know Pentecost, but most of us know nothing of the six months of the liturgical calendar that fall after Easter and end just before Advent. This period is called ordinary time. It is a time of hearing stories of, for our journey, stories of people learning what it means to be people of faith, it is a time for living into our baptism. In a small book on Celtic Christianity, Benedictine monk Timothy Joyce traced the disappearance of many of the Celtic influences on the Christian church when Roman Catholicism became the dominant voice of the church in the British Isles. In particular, he pointed to the loss of appreciation for the creation itself. The Celts, 
who once populated much of the British Isles and parts of France, spoke of the thin places, the boundary points between the ordinary and the other world. Celtic Christians had a sense of living on the edges, the margins, of pressing themselves to the limits to find such places. In those thin places, in the midst of an ordinary day, the sacred would be present. And in those thin places, time was caught up in eternity. In Anne Lamott's delightful book, Traveling Mercies, she talked about her surrender to belief. Her life was broken, so cracked. She later came to associate that time with the Leonard Cohen song in which he sings, there are cracks, cracks in everything. That's how the light gets in. And I think again of September 11th and of hurricanes and tsunamis and fires and of how what had seemed impregnable and sturdy and solid and grounded was quite simply gone, reduced to ashes and rubble. Cracks, cracks everywhere. The earth looked like the Celtic margin, the thin place, where time and eternity are mixed and melded and where at last, by God's good grace, the light comes in. This celebration and acceptance of the ordinariness of my labors frees me to write, to write simple little stories about people I love, places I have been, things I have seen, hopes I have dreamed, just ordinary things, made e extraordinary through the eyes, through the lens of faith, through eyes of wonder, through the witness of words, and through the grace of God. And as I write, I also read. I read other people's stories, stories very much like my own, essays about faith and failure, feasting and family, stories about the cracked places and thin places, places where by the grace of God, light pierces through and illuminates the darkness. These are stories of ordinary time, but time that is shot through with fissures and pinholes where the light gets in. These are stories that originate in those times when I am, if only for a moment, wide awake to what is happening now or to what happened then a long, long time ago. They come from times when I remember that I am on a journey, and it is a faith journey, a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute, second-by-second journey, slowly and steadily moving toward home. Thank you, Jan. I want to. I have four things I want to say uh, about Jan's story. I don't want to take too much time, um, but I think Jan's story illustrates something that's really important. Now, I think at one level we would all agree that Jan is no ordinary storyteller. Um, her ordinary stories are extraordinary, but in another really important sense, her stories are ordinary. In the sense that she defined ordinary, in the, in the way this, in the sense that the way the church defines ordinary time, it means, it means not humble or unimportant. It means normal. It means regular. It means habitual. 
And I think what listening to Jan reminds us of, about all of us, is that humans are fundamentally, ordinarily, storytelling creatures. Aristotle famously defined a human being as, of the two creatures that walk on two legs, humans are the ones without feathers, chickens are the other. But a better way of defining what a human being is, I think, is that a human being is a creature that can't help but tell stories. We tell stories in our cultures before our cultures can write a word. We tell stories. Once our cultures learn how to write, the first thing we do, after we make a record of how many cows and pigs we have, is we write down the most important stories that we have always told ourselves. Human beings are fundamentally, or ordinarily, storytelling creatures. My second point is about stories. The technical term for a story is a, is a narrative. A narrative, um, a narrative is a story where something happens, and then something else happens, and then because of that, something else happens. There's a causal connection between the events. But stories, narratives, create meaningful, causal connections between ourselves and what we experience. That leads me to my third point. Stories, both in the making and in the listening, are how we, how human beings, make sense of all that stuff that's happening around us. The way humans make sense is we make a story. And in the telling of stories, this is my fourth point, telling a story is how we express, not only to others, but also to ourselves, what it means, and more importantly than that, stories are how we explain to each other what it feels like to be human. And I think Jan's stories illustrate that ordinary practice that human beings ordinarily do with each other we tell stories and we listen to stories because that's how we make sense and it's how we communicate what we've discovered about the lives we live. I'll stop there. I'll say more right I'm just going to say one or two more things and then I'll uh, give the mic back to Jan. But... One thing that we also can remember about the doctrine of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is that what Paul tells us throughout his writings in the New Testament is that because of the resurrection, your work here is not in vain. So what can happen sometimes when we anticipate the resurrection of the body or the life that we will have after death is we tend to think of that in this kind of escapist way that well, why can't I just get there? I'm ready to fast forward through this life and get on to the next. But actually what we find in the New Testament is a different, the very opposite sort of energy happening, which is that Paul is saying it's because of the resurrection of your body that God is saying everything you do right now in your body matters tremendously and that God loves the creation as it is now so much that he intends to renew it, to transform it, to preserve it. So what you do now matters. What you do now um, 
is a, a is a means of channeling the grace that we will experience in the end when we are fully in harmony with God. Um, and then <clears throat> also something to remember is that what we will experience then will be different. So while there is continuity, there is also a promise of something new that we have to look forward to. Um, what we have, theologians have worked this out in the sense that what we experience now is as our natural body is uh, kind of enlivened or animated by a soul. Uh, that will be replaced in some sense by the Spirit of God. So what we now experience as our soul will be replaced by spirit. And yet it will still be us. It will be the fullest version of us. Um, the version of us that we've never gotten to quite experience in this life because we've been hampered by the limits of sin, evil, and death. So what we look forward to is uh, a world where we live with God and one another in full harmony, in uh, a shalom is the way that the Hebrews imagine this, which means this full flourishing of all things, this right ordering of all things. So Jan's going to help us think about, kind of turn our minds towards that reality. I should tell you that I wrote this piece when we were living on the Pepperdine campus where we were for much of our career. And this is called The Community of Memory. The winter of 1993-94 was a very long emotional season for those of us who called Southern California home. In November, ferocious fires turned our immediate world in Malibu upside down. The earth looked like a barren moonscape. And then just about the time we were beginning to rejoice over a few sprigs of green grass poking their slender blades up through the soot impregnated soil. The soil itself took on a life of its own. In the early morning hours of January 17th, the earth began to quake, and everything that depended upon that soil for grounding began to move with tremendous ferocity. Buildings swayed and cracked, highways buckled, fires erupted. Once again, chaos ruled. And then in February, the soil began to move again, this time because of torrential rains that saturated the earth. Houses literally hydroplaned down hillsides. Many people lost family, friends, homes, and jobs in those triple disasters. Others of us emerged virtually unscathed. Or did we? We all lost something, if only our naivete. We came face to face with our own finitude and with the finitude and frailty of the seemingly solid structures that surrounded us. We now knew that we could be touched. Even those who weren't touched directly now knew that they could be. When fire engulfed our community on election, on election day in November, I was caught in gridlock on Pacific Coast Highway one of thousands trying to make their way home. For more than an hour, I sat, waiting, waiting to move toward reunion with my family. As I sat, 
I pulled out a dog-eared voting pamphlet I had used earlier in the day. And on it, I began to jot down a list of items that we needed to pack in our car prior to fleeing for safety, mentally sorting through the most precious items in our home. Photographs, quilts, the Amana rocker I had rocked my child, in which I had rocked my child, my mother's little wooden sewing cabinet, Richard's grandmother's silver egg, the contents of the cedar chest, the books Richard had written, and the list went on. I still have this list, and even today the items still seem to make sense. I would not delete anything, and in fact I would add some things. Everything on the list has a story that surrounds it, our family story, items from childhood, from Andy's childhood, from parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. As the minutes turned into hours, it became clear that I would be unable to reach my home. All access to Malibu was closed. I could not go home. Suddenly, everything moved into sharp perspective, and I realized that nothing on that list made any real difference to me. When placed against the reality that a giant inferno separated me from both Richard and Andy. My list was now quite short. Richard and Andy. Lord, please. During that winter, most of us spent some time reflecting on the meaning of fire, quake and mud, trash and treasures, life and death. All those who found their homes burned to the ground or crushed by the relentless moving of the earth were left with essentially the same thing, memories. And everyone's memories weighed the same. As I thought about my own treasures, I found that the things I cherished most were the items that neither a burglar nor an insurance adjuster would note. Indeed, the things that I cherish most are things made by the hands of someone I know and love, or little bits and pieces of things handed down from one generation to the next. These things are really not replaceable. Money might enable me to buy something serviceable, but it would not provide items with a story. The items that I value most are those that serve as triggers of memory. When I hold those items, I'm reminded of childhood, of friends, of courtship, of our wedding day, of the birth of our son, of graduations, or a baptism. Almost a week went by after the fire before I realized that I had not even thought to have Richard rescue one of my most treasured items, <laughs> a rolling pin. Yes, a rolling pin a rather ordinary wooden rolling pin. It had rolled out thousands of flaky pie crusts to cover bubbling cherry cobblers. This was my mother's rolling pin. And when I hold it, I feel extraordinary close to her. I look down and I see not my own hands, but her hands. I hear the laughing voices that filled our hospitable table through all the years of my childhood. My mother was with me in my kitchen. In March of that same year, the wor my world was turned upside down again. For my father, age 85, became critically ill and was hospitaled in Nashville. Suddenly, finitude stared our entire family straight in the eye. 
For even after the physical challenges were behind him, his essence seemed somewhat altered. He had not had a stroke. His asthma was now under control, but something was not quite right. Was it simply the medication? Memory seemed diminished, and tomorrow loomed as a vast unknown. As the weeks and months passed by, most of our fears were alleviated, and our fear of Alzheimer's disease proved to be unfounded. But I was now confronted by a new reality. Those little things that filled my house, those little triggers of memory, are of absolutely no avail when memory itself fails. To count on the permanence of memory is to be trapped in the inevitable struggle against finitude. Actually, the one thing we can count on is death. And because God is our Father, we can count on death and then life forever and ever through all eternity as His children. As the years began to register more of their little tally marks in my own columns, I am beginning to learn to see the death of his saints as a great victory indeed. The idea of a world without sickness and pain, without disappointment and alienation, without loss and diminishing abilities, of reunion without separation, a place which weary pilgrims will recognize as home, this really seems like victory to me. We believe that we have been remembered, that we live in the memory of God, that no matter what befalls us, fire, quake, flood, wind, cancer, Alzheimer's, that we, along with all of the redeemed of the ages, are held in the memory of God and will be treasured by Him throughout all eternity. Amen. Thank you again, Jan. I want to start with the, with the rolling pin. Right? As, as you now know, it, it's, it's no, to, to be really cliche about it, it, it's no ordinary rolling pin. What makes it extraordinary is not its size or the fact that it's made out of titanium or some exotic metal. What makes it extraordinary is the fact that it means something. It's, it's a trigger for a very powerful and important memory. And that reminds me that stories, one of the reasons we tell stories, maybe the most important reason we tell them, is because stories allow humans to capture what we want to remember most. They allow us to preserve what we never want to forget. And we tell those stories and retell those stories to bring those things back into our present ordinary lives to remind us that there's something extraordinary going on in a different sense. And that those stories, just like some objects, connect us with that world of significance that matters to us. I like that phrase, triggers of memory. She says uh, at one point when she's thinking about as the fire gets worse, money won't buy everything she wants, she said, or everything she's going to lose. Money might enable me to buy something serviceable, but it would not provide items with a story. 
You can always replace that shirt, but not that shirt. Does that make sense? So those triggers of memory, those things that connect us to our own most important stories, even if we can't or don't even know how to tell them yet, are those things that matter to us. Memory is where we store those things until we can tell that story. Memory reminds us that something matters. You all know there are things you can't, you can't forget. We may not be willing to talk about them. We may not be able to explain them, but we know they matter. We know they're, they're extraordinary. And at some point in time, hopefully, we'll figure the story out. I like that notion of, of, of memory triggers. Because if we think about Holy Scripture, so much of Holy Scripture itself is either a story like Genesis or like the Gospel of Mark, or it's the explanation of a story, the token of a story, like Paul's letters, or like Revelation. It's, a, it's about the story that we don't ever want to forget. So understanding stories and valuing stories, I think, is a really important piece of what it means to be a believer. And to sort of bring things around, if you think about the Apostles' Creed, now, the first thing most of us would say, and in, and in many ways it's very true, is this, well, it's, it's not a story. It's important, but it's not a story. But I would say, as Jan's last piece reminds us of, it's related to story in a very important way. If you think about it, the Apostles' Creed, that list of things, of fundamental beliefs that we hold, is an index you remember that Jan's list, the one that she wrote on the back of the voting pamphlet? The list of things to put in the car? The Apostles' Creed is, is a kind of an index like that. It's that list. Nothing's ever taken off the list. But this is the list of what we take with us. It's the list of those stories that matter most to us. That list of things that are most essential to all Christian believers. This might be a good time for us to say it now, and as we say it now together, think about what each one of its items, the set of stories each one of those items reminds us of. And we'll begin. I believe in God the Father, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's our list, like Jan's list. That's the list that the earliest believers compiled when they faced their persecutions, when they faced their challenges, when they had to explain to each other what it is you actually believe. Just boil it down for us. The Apostles' Creed is our list of, of those most important, most extraordinary stories whose meaning we live out in our ordinary lives, where every now and then, you mentioned those thin places,
Every now and then we see those stories break through if we pay attention through the ordinariness of our apparently real lives. And they show us what's really real on the other side. And those are the kinds of things we tell stories about. For Jan, those are the softball games, the ugly stucco houses. The, the, those are the stories where she's seen through the veil, so to speak, at what matters, at what's meaningful, at what's really real. And the Apostles' Creed is one of those kinds of things that reminds us of what there is on that, that other side. Did you have follow comments? A couple of interesting things. We mentioned that, that uneasiness some Christians have about um, incineration, cremation versus hold the body. That, that has a lot to do with early converts. In Britain, for example, uh, before they were converted, uh, the normal practice was to burn bodies. For the ancient Greeks, the normal practice was to burn bodies. That's how you cleanse them. But when Christianity happens, archaeologists are always really disappointed. Because what happens in Christianity is humans stop burning bodies, but they also don't bury people with all the rest of their stuff. So there's nothing to dig up but bones. But I think that part of that change from cremation to inhumation, from burning bodies to burying them whole, is connected with what Christians realized about the story they were living into. That if there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, then this body is going to come back to life. Does that make sense? It may not be rational to us nowadays. And we can figure out how God can put bodies back together again. But that's a symbol of how importantly they change the stories they live by. They change the way they even buried the dead. That, uh, that Celtic notion of the, the, thin, the thin veil between this world and the other world. We see in our current culture in something like that Netflix show Stranger Things. Anybody seen that one? If you've seen that one, you know what I'm talking about. There's, that the difference between that really different world and ours is always all around us. We just don't, we just don't see through the veil. But I really like Jan's story because we all have those moments where Something happens and it kind of breaks through the mundaneness of our lives. Sometimes we can't tell stories. Sometimes, as Jan said, in the middle of the most appalling things, 9-11, a tsunami, a fire, we get writer's block if we're writers. We can't write. And that's probably because we can't sort through it yet. What's happened, what's happened is too big for us to get our heads around. We can't tell stories. But that's because stories are how we process, as humans, everything about our lives. It's how we, if you explain why do you love somebody, you, you never get a list of chemical equations. You get a story about how you know they love them. Does that make sense? Nancy, you know something. In light of, I guess, what we talked about with the building being paid off today, I was already thinking about it. I went Friday to the Storytelling Festival in Florence. Oh. And I don't know if you know, Donald Davis is one of my favorite storytellers ever. And a lot of his stories are set around his time in church. And so you know, he was one of them did. And then he finished by saying that his mother had called to tell him, you know, several years afterward that the church building where they had worship had burned. And he said, he said, I realized, he said, we didn't really lose the church. And he said, they built another one, another building. But he said, what we lost was a box of stories. 
because he said inside that physical space had been birth stories and funeral stories and marriages and baptisms and and I think just the way we appreciate it, there is something about the physical that helps us to you know, makes those memories tangible. And all those lives, those apparently ordinary lives, in this room, in this church, this box of apparently ordinary stories, are really extraordinary stories. That's probably a good place to stop. Can, can I say something? Sure. So, uh, I just want to say to Matt, to Lauren, and if Josh ever comes back, <laughs> that this has been one of those uh, creative and tremendous classes I've ever been a part of. You've stretched us, and, and just for the time and effort y'all put in, it's been great. Thank Okay, we can we can stop now. <laughs> we, we don't have a, we don't have a towel for. One more week. Yeah, there's one more week. We can still mess it up. So. <laughs> Thank y'all for being here. Thank you. We uh we had a wedding last night. Yeah. Mallory.